Bokatov, good morning. This morning we have the privilege of uh, studying together Parshas Chai Sara, which appears on page 106 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Reminder there's an opportunity each week to sponsor the Parsha class in honor and memory of someone, or perhaps to take on to sponsor for the whole year. You can call the Shul office, speak to Linda, and uh, we certainly welcome your contribution and support. Parshas Chai Sara. The end of last week's parasha, we know we had the Akedah, the close call, the incredible story of the test of Avram and a test of Yitzchak. Yitzchak's 37 years old. Avram did not push Yitzchak in the stroller to the Akedah, but by Yachtav, they walked together. Often uh, overlooked is the test of Yitzchak and his role in the Akedah. I mentioned to you last week that Art Scroll in the Stone Chumash lists it as the 10th trial, the Akedah, on page 101. And the truth is, in listing it such, they're taking a side, but not everybody agrees. There's a big machlokas among the commentators. Chazal, our rabbis already tell us in Avos that there were 10 trials, 10 tests that Avram underwent. What the tests are, less clear. The Rambam says all 10 tests have to appear in the text. You can't employ the Midrashim. So the Rambam goes through the text to find 10 challenging times, 10 tests or trials, within the text of Torah itself. Others say, no, Ramban, you're able to count among the tests, even tests that are in Mamari Chazal. So if you go through the Medrash, for example, the fact that Avram was thrown into the Kivshan Aish, that Avram was cast into the fiery furnace and survived, is that a test or not, will depend on whether you require the test to appear in the text of the Torah. Rabbi Yonah says the 10th test was not the end of last week, it was the beginning of this week. I've mentioned this countless times, you could listen online, and won't get into what that test was. But in the negotiation and dialogue between Avram and Ephron Achiti, that with the passing of Sarah, when Sarah heard the news of the Akedah, she died. Sarah's death certificate, the cause of death was, she was scared to death. Literally, that expression we use, someone could be scared to death. Sarah was scared to death. What was that tenth test? That Sarah died as a result of something Avram did? That Avram had to buy land that God had already promised him would be his? The negotiation with the duplicitous, insincere Ephron Hachiti? So again, you could listen online, we've talked about it in the, in the past, but our parsha begins with Avram having to overcome what for some commentaries is in fact his final test of securing a burial plot, a permanent burial plot, not only for Sarah, but for all the Avos and Imos, except for Rachel, and a place that continues to be a very holy place for us, Ara Yomazeh. We have that negotiation with Ephron, and then the Torah tells us, Avram now reaches a ripe old age, looks back on his life with satisfaction. True, he's lost his great partner, he feels incomplete. Rabbi says that with Sarah's loss, Avram no longer feels he can be this transformational leader. Sarah was his partner. Sarah energized him. She had vision. They did it together. And without her, he realizes he's hit a turning point in his life where now, rather than be proactive, he's a little reflective. And in that state of reflection, he realizes that with all that he's accomplished and done, and even with the gift of Yitzchak and Yitzchak's survival of the Akedah, what does he not have? Eneklach. He doesn't have a legacy, at least not through Yitzchak. Yitzchak needs a wife, which is why it continues. And Avram therefore instructs Eliezer, 
I need you to go find a wife for my Yitzchak. What does it mean? Vashem Biraches Avram Bakol. God blessed Avram with everything. What is everything? The Ramban says, we've studied this in the past as well, what does it mean to have everything? When we describe someone, he has every, she has everything. What is everything? Well, it depends. Different people define everything differently. Size of your house, the logo on the front of your car, youthfulness, health, money. Your definition of everything probably changes based on what you take for granted having until you don't have it. Some people say, I could wake up in the morning and I can go to the bathroom without an incident, I have everything. <laughs> For other people, unless I have a mansion and an expensive car and a large bank account, I have nothing. So the Ramban says, what does it mean Avram had everything? He had wealth, honor, he had achieved longevity in life, he had children. But what was he missing? When he realizes I have everything, he says, not quite. Almost everything. I don't have grandchildren through which to pay it forward. Of course, the Medrash says, Hashem Be'erach Avram Bakol, who is Bakol, is the name of his, his daughter, that Avram had a daughter now, Bakol, who is she, what's her legacy, what's her story, again, not for now. But keep in mind this phrase, we're going to come back to it when we go through the section we're going to look more closely at, that Avram is a Zakein Baba Yamim, Avram reaches an age where he feels God has blessed him, Bakol, he has everything. So he tells Eliezer, yes, Yes. Correct. Yeah, somebody asked me just yesterday, why in Nusachari at the end of Halal do they say that, that expression, this Pasuk? I said, you have to ask somebody who davens Nusachari. <laughs> they said, I did, and they named one of the Chabad rabbis in town, and he didn't know. I said, he didn't know, you think I know? <laughs> anyway, it's a good question, I'm not sure. Uh, maybe, I mean, the obvious answer is that when you've done saying Halal, you should feel a sense like Avram, that Hashem Berech is Avram Bakol. I feel I have, whatever I have is what I need and it's enough for me to be able to acknowledge Hashem. So Avram takes Eliezer, his loyal servant, says Eliezer. Oh, okay. Right, there's a big, Bakol, you can, five hour discussion just on the word Bakol. Uh, he says to Eliezer, swear to me, you can't let my son marry some heathen, idolatrous, pagan, reject woman from here. I need you to go and find him a wife. Eliezer goes to find a wife, and Rav Palm points out, what is the core critical? He doesn't ask on the resume, what seminary did she go to? What was her GPA? What was her dress size? Did the mother wear a Shabbos robe to the table? Does the father wear a hat when he takes the garbage out? What are the medical history of the family? Were the grandparents buried next to each other in Europe in the cemetery? Or was it so from the men and women at separate sections? By the way, these are all questions I've received. None of that were Eliezer's questions. What is the one thing Eliezer is looking for? The one thing on the top of the resume that he needs to see to be the matriarch of the Jewish people, to be worthy of Yitzchak? Chesed. Is she kind? Is she selfless? Is she thoughtful? Does she extend herself to other people? Does she care? And of course, Rivka differentiates herself as that woman at the well, offering not only Eliezer, but offering his camels. And from this passage, we extract so many critical, vital lessons, which again, we're not going to study, but we have on Why You Torah in the past studied, 
lessons about Shiduchim, what we're looking for, how to find the people we're looking for, and so on. Eliezer continues by, as soon as he realizes she extends herself not only to him, but to his camels, what does Eliezer do? Vayikah shakilu agmalim on page 112, Pasach of after the animals drink, Vayikah ha'ish nezem zahav beka mishkalo, ushneitz midim al yadeh asara zahav mishkalam. Ha'ish, why doesn't he have a name here? Also not for now, but Eliezer, the man, the main man, he gives her a gift. He betrothed Rivka. He sent as a shliach, as an agent of Yitzchak. And he betrothed, he proposes to Rivka on behalf of Yitzchak. He's found her. She's the one. Again, not because of the picture she has on the resume. And not because of how long her Shemona Esrei is, although those are lovely things. She's a balas chesed. He sees her giving quality. So right away he gives her a gift. What is the gift he gives her? Two gifts. Number one, Nezem Zahav. Yes, Rivka wore a nose ring. Okay. Nezem Zahav, a nose ring. And how much was it worth? Beka Mishkalo. It weighed a Beka. How much is a Beka? How much? Anyone know? Thank you. A half shekel. Beka la Gugolas. Later with the Machatzis shekel, Beka la Gugolas. A Beka Mishkalo. He gave her a nose ring worth half a shekel. And he gave her two bracelets. We get off easy in the Yichud room. You just have to give one gift. He had three pieces of jewelry. And I don't know, try giving a nose ring. See how well that goes over. But two bracelets. Two bracelets that are worth ten shekel. Two gold bracelets worth ten shekel. Rashi picks up and says, these are not insignificant references. Why is Eliezer Davka giving these gifts? The half shekel value of the nose ring is a hint, an allusion to what mitzvah the Jewish people would be given later, the mitzvah of? Machz is a shekel, a half shekel. And why two bracelets, says Rashi, corresponding to the Shnei Luchos Abris, two tablets. And why worth ten shekel? Because what's written on the two tablets? The Ten Commandments. And I ask you, and I asked under a chuppah two nights ago that I spoke at in New York, why is Eliezer in the moment of romance, of love, of this bond he's creating, betrothal between Rivka, this extraordinary young woman, and Yitzchak, who he will serve faithfully. Why is he machatzis a shekel? How unromantic is machatzis a shekel? Okay, a little bit more, you're connecting to Torah. But why in that moment is he giving gifts with allusions specifically to these things? So here's what I thought of. This is what I said under the chuppah. I say it to you now. Maybe what Eliezer was communicating to Rivka and through this, the parsha of Shiduchim, to us, the following two messages about marriage. Maybe, maybe. What does half shekel have to do with marriage? So when we've studied this, we've talked about how terribly inefficient it was to give a half shekel. Half shekel, parsha Kisisa is given in the context of taking a census to count how many Jewish people there were. It's much more efficient not to count in a fraction, but to count in an integer in a whole number. Each person should give a shekel. And whatever number you're left with, that's the number of people. Each person giving a half shekel means you've got to do some math. Who wants to do math? So why did the Torah instruct us to give a half shekel? Why not the full shekel? So many, many commentaries there explain, very simply, what is the census? It's being counted among the Jewish people. One were to give a full shekel, they would feel, you know what? 
I count on my own. I'm complete. I'm whole. I'm full. I'm done. I am an entire entity unto myself. I count by myself. Instead, the Torah says, no. Give a half shekel. And realize that on your own, you're incomplete. It's only in combination with another Jew. It's only when you relate and connect with others that you can be whole. So you each give a half shekel to realize that when we disconnect or isolate ourselves from the community, we can never be complete. We have to connect with others, combine, collaborate. We have to find a synergy with others in order to become whole, in order to be a complete shekel. If that's the case, maybe that's the message of marriage as well. That marriage is not thinking, I am a complete entity, and I have found someone else who's a full entity, and we combine. Marriage is not one plus one equals two. Marriage is a half and a half becoming a whole. In the most healthy marriage, in the healthiest, at least what we aspire in the healthiest marriage, we feel incomplete long before Jerry Maguire, that you complete me, that I am nothing without you. I'm not whole. We bring out the best in one another. We compliment one another. We're there to give honest feedback to one another and to place boundaries around one another. And that together we make a whole, but without it, we're incomplete. And I suggested that maybe this is also the reason that when God creates the world, He creates Adam and Chava as one androgynous figure only to split them later. The Rebbe Shalom, the Almighty, omnipotent, infinite God knew that there would be two genders, man and women eventually, so why not create separately Adam and Chava? Why create them as one and split them in two? And maybe similarly the answer is, because if they would have been created separately and independently, when they would come together they'd feel like one plus one equals two. But by creating them together and splitting them, God was communicating and instilling with us the sense that you know what, until I find my life partner, I'm incomplete. I'm a half. Only in combination with them can I be made whole. That's what we aspire for in marriage. That's what Shidduchim is about. Finding the person who completes you and who you can complete in turn to become one. A half and a half becoming a whole. And maybe the second message is Shnei Luchos represent Bein Adam Lachavero and Bein Adam Lamakom. That our homes that we will build, that Yitzchak and Rivka will build and that we build have to be attentive to both Bein Adam Lamakom have holy places relating to God, and Bein Adam Lachavero, Rivka's trait of Balas Chesed, have to relate to both. But how were the Aseris Adibros received? How did we accept them at, Mar- at Har Sinai? What did we say? Nasa Venishma. And I think that's also a very healthy attitude in marriage. Nasa Venishma. Meaning not Nishma Venasa. Tell me what you think and if it makes sense to me and if it works for me and if it's what I want to do, then we'll do it. But the opposite. Nasa, this matters to you? Whether I'll understand it or not, whether it makes sense to me or not, whether I want to do it or not. It matters to you? Nasa, vinishma. then I'll try to understand it afterwards. But first, Nasa before Nishma. Maybe those two critical attitudes in marriage were what Eliezer was communicating to Rivka and through this story to all of us. The machtsa shekel, that we're a half and a half becoming a whole. And number two, nasa v'nishma, that we have to bring an attitude of putting the other person before ourselves. It doesn't have to fit into what we understand in order to make it happen. Of course, with Rivka came Lavan. Lavan. The Torah introduces us to Rivka's brother, Lavan, we know right away Lavan is a character. 
self-interest. If, if Rivka is selfless, Lavan is selfish. They're opposites. Hard to believe they were brought up in the same house. Yitzchak and Rivka marry. When they do, where does Rivka find Yitzchak? He's Lasuach Basada. He's having a conversation. Who's he talking to in the field? Ribonashal. This is one of the languages we have of Tfila. One of the 13 synonyms for Tfila is Sicha. Sicha, to give a Sicha, Sicha is conversation, it's a dialogue. What an incredible description of prayer. That prayer ultimately is a conversation with Hashem. Let me tell you what's going on in my life. Let me tell you what I'm grateful for. Let me tell you where I need you. It's such a comfortable connection with Hashem that you're able to have a conversation. Yitzchak brings Rivka into his mother's tent. When does Yitzchak fall in love with Rivka? Before or after marriage? After marriage. Again, a message for us and particularly for young people getting married today is that love does not precede marriage. You know, lust precedes marriage, attraction precedes marriage, interest precedes marriage, liking each other a lot precedes marriage. But what is the Jewish definition of love? Is giving to one another. It's experiencing the challenges of life together. It's compromising for one another. That doesn't come, you know, while your parents are paying for you to eat at La Marais together. That comes when you live life and you got to make sacrifices and compromise. I paid for all my dates, by the way. But when you make compromises and sacrifices, it comes. So the Torah is telling us, when does Yitzchak love Rivka? Vayehaveha. Not Vayehaveha. Eliezer says, let me tell you about this amazing girl. Incredible. Yichas? Not so great. But she's a balas chesed. Let me tell you, she's unbelievable. Oh, Vayehaveha. He loved her and then he married her. No. He marries her and then in marriage... The love you have after your 20th anniversary versus your 10th anniversary versus your first... After the first anniversary, maybe you might the most romantic flowery card. But, but it pales in comparison to the love of... I'm now celebrating my 20th... I'm a big knocker. I'm able to talk. I'm married 20 years. Okay. Avram by Yosef. Avram, this is the section we're going to study. That Avram remarries. Remarries can have a dual connotation. You can remarry the person you were previously married to. You can remarry a new person. We'll see in a moment who, Yitzchak, who Avram marries. Avram passes away. Yitzchak and Yishmael come together in order to bury him. Okay, that's an overview of the whole parasha. Before we look specifically at our section, I want to share something remarkable with you. Something really, really incredible with you. I'm told I abused the word incredible. I describe everything as incredible. But this is incredible. This is worthy of being described as incredible. There's a new book that just came out. Dr. Henry Abramson, who's a, I'm a great admirer of his, used to be here in South Florida. He's a dean now of Torah in New York. And he just came out with a book called Torah from the Years of Wrath, 1939 to 1943, The Historical Context of the Eish Kodesh. And let me tell you about his book and then share something on Parshas Chayesara from his book, from his research. Eish Kodesh was written by the Piazetz Rebbe. We've talked about him before. His site was a couple weeks ago. In fact, we quoted him just a couple weeks ago that uh, we should always realize no matter if our, we don't feel we have yichas, we have the greatest yichas. We come from Avram Yitzvah and Yaakov. Piazetzna, the Rebbe of Kalanimus Kalman Shapiro of Piazetzna, was the Rebbe in the Warsaw Ghetto. He gave sermons. In the, he was a great leader long before the Holocaust. He was a dean of a yeshiva and he was a rav, a chassid Rebbe. He was an incredible, incredible person with remarkable vision. 
Um, but then he became tragically the Rav of the Warsaw Ghetto and had the unenviable task of giving drushes in the Warsaw Ghetto. He wrote out the drushes. First he had a scribe who Motzei Shabbos would record them. Later he did himself. And those pieces of paper were buried together with the Oinig Shabbos um, archives that were buried in three spots. Not all of them were recovered under the Warsaw Ghetto in order to try to capture right, uh, Manuel Ringelblum and the Oinig Shabbos put together. If you don't know the story, you should know. It's a, it's a really, really, um, I can't say incredible anymore. It's a really uh, very moving, very powerful, very powerful story. Um, so they were included within the, the Onig Shabbos archive. In 1960, they were collected and they were printed. And that's the copy of Eish Kodesh, which we've basically been working off of. However, recently, not Dr. Abramson, someone else, took the original manuscript and put out a more accurate copy. Because the original copy, which was put out in relative haste, didn't really dive into some of the Rebbe's own annotations on the original manuscript and so on. A more accurate copy was put out. But the, the, the Piazetsny Rebbe's own drushes that he gave in the Warsaw Ghetto between 1939 and 1943, it's very interesting. You read the drushes, and for a few exceptions, the Rebbe doesn't mention Nazi, Holocaust, murder, ghetto, concentration camp, gas chamber. He doesn't mention... Doesn't mention anything, right? We were in the Warsaw Ghetto, Rabbi Roth and I, in June. We were on our Poland trip to Israel. We heard the story of, and saw the monument to Ringelblum. So he doesn't mention it. And the thesis of Dr. Abramson's really, really special work is that you need to understand the historical context. What was happening that Shabbos that the Rebbe gave that drasha? What was he alluding to? What was he hinting at? What was going on in his life? in the life of the ghetto, in the life of European Jewry, when he gave that message, when he gave that drasha. So Parshas Chayesara, November 4th, 1939, the Rebbe spoke in the Warsaw Ghetto. And I want to share with you how Dr. Abramson gives a context. You can order the book on Amazon. It gives a history of the Sefer Eish Kodesh, of Piazet Nechassidus, and then goes through the Rebbe's drushas, giving the historical context. I, I really highly recommend it. So Parshish Chaisara, it was delivered November 4th, 1939. This is the third drasha that's recorded in the, in the Sefer, in Eish Kodesh. First two were Rosh Hashanah and Shabbat Shuvah, And this is really the first one in Sefer Bereshis. And it was probably written before the bombardment of Warsaw began, which was at the beginning of the, holiday, uh, the holidays. On the morning of Yom Kippur, after Yom Kippur, 1939, tragedy struck the Rebbe's home. A mortar fragment flew through a window and grievously wounded the Rebbe's only son, Elimelech. The Rebbe, together with his daughter-in-law and sister-in-law, rushed the young man to the overcrowded hospital, seeking emergency treatment. The Harriet staff admitted him but demanded that the family remain outside. The woman stood by the entrance reciting Tehillim, and the Rebbe rushed off to the home of a doctor who might be able to intervene. While he was away, another round of bombs rained upon the hospital, killing the Rebbe's family. His son survived for a few more days, finally succumbing to his wounds on the second day of Sukkot. So the Rebbe ran out to get a doctor, which saved his life. And his family was killed in the bombing, including his son, who held on for a few more days. No entries are recorded in Eish Kodesh for six weeks after this incident. And then on November 4th, the Rebbe broke his silence when he said the following. And here's a translation. The, the drushes obviously were written in Hebrew. Here's the English translation. 
It's written in the holy work, Moor Vashemesh, the beginning of Parshas Vayera, in the name of the holy rabbi, the man of God, our teacher, our master, Menachem Mendel of Rimanov, regarding the Talmudic passage, a bris melach, a covenant is made with salt, and a covenant is made with afflictions. Just as salt makes meat palatable, so too Yisurin, afflictions, purify the individual of sin. Just as one cannot derive pleasure from meat that has been excessively salted, rather only if it was properly salted, so too afflictions should, not, should be meted out only in such measure they can be tolerated, and with an admixture of mercy, said the Rebbe. Rashi explained the death of the sorrow was juxtaposed to the binding of Yitzchak, because with the news that her son was being bound and was about to be sacrificed, her soul burst forth from her and she died. That is to say, Moshe, our teacher of the faithful shepherd, juxtaposed the death of Sarah to the binding of Yitzchak in order to advocate for us, indicating what results from excessive afflictions. Heaven forbid, her soul burst forth and she died. Furthermore, if this was the case with the tremendous righteous Sarah, who was as blameless at the age of 100 as 20-year-old, and all of her years were equally good, yet despite this, she was unable to withstand such horrible afflictions, how much the more so does this apply to us? When you read that drusha in a vacuum... It's a drusha. When you understand that six weeks after his only son, daughter-in-law, his whole family wiped out, he is spared the connection to Akedas Yitzchak and to how Sarah responded. Now he's really grappling with his own response. It's really extraordinary. And says Dr. Abramson, the message is challenging on a theological plane and in many ways characteristic of the elect- electric quality that pervades the Rebbe's writings. The Rebbe poetically argues that Moshe, as original scribe and therefore editor of the Torah, intentionally placed the reference to Sarah's death immediately after the narrative of Akedas Yitzchak in order to, lev- to deliver a human message to the divine that too much suffering can break a person. On its own, the sermon is incredibly potent. A startling illustration of Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Rimanov's Hasidic teaching. The historical context, however, renders the passage absolutely terrifying. These are the first words that the Rebbe uttered publicly since the deaths of his son, daughter-in-law, and sister-in-law. One can only imagine the tension in the room as he delivered the sermon. Afflictions should be meted out only in such measure they can be tolerated and with an admixture of mercy. The Rebbe couched his veiled communication, really a personal communication between himself and Hashem within the biblical and midrashic narrative of Sarah's death. Openly expressing his anguish and grief would have been inappropriate. The rereading of a story well known to his audience placed his personal pain in a communal context. The printed version of the text, however, glosses over an important element of the manuscript version. Immediately prior to the penultimate sentence, the Rebbe inserted a shin-shaped notation, indicating a later marginal annotation to be added in the published version. We do not know when the Rebbe reviewed his manuscript. The Rebbe ultimately was moved out of Warsaw. He had the opportunity, by the way, to have escaped even before going into the ghetto, but he insisted on being with his chassidim. He had the opportunity to escape later, but he insisted on remaining. And in the Tronicki labor camp, he was brutally murdered in the Tronicki labor camp. But beforehand, he had reviewed his own manuscript of these drushes. Several data annotations indicate he did so in the late 1942, early 1943. It's likely the following passage was inserted at that time. So it's in the new edition, but it didn't make it into the printed edition 1960. It's also possible, the Rebbe writes, to argue that Sarah Imenu was so heartbroken with the binding of Yitzchak that her soul burst forth, did so for the benefit of the Jewish people, to demonstrate to God how it was impossible for the Jewish people to tolerate excessive afflictions. Even for one who remains alive after such afflictions, by the grace of God, nevertheless some of his strength, his mind and spirit are broken and destroyed. Is there a difference between partial and total death? 
A problem is resolved by the verse the years of the life of Sarah. It seems Sarah may have sinned for the forsaking the remaining years of her life had she not chosen to be so heartbroken over the binding of Yitzchak. Since, however, she forsook them for the benefit of the Jewish people, the verse subtly indicates the years of the life of Sarah. That is to say, even those years beyond her 127 would have been equally good. Even forsaking them did not constitute a sin on her part. Okay, I, I again encourage you to read it, not only for this incredible insight here on Chaye Sarah, but on other parshios as well. He gives a context, the historical context, which just totally opens up and reveals what the Rebbe was really communicating. To picture yourself being in the ghetto, in that room, six weeks after this loss and tragedy that the Rebbe experienced. What's he going to say? And he doesn't address it directly. But he's talking to the Rebbe Shalom while letting others listen. And he's telling him, enough! You've killed a piece of me. And is there a difference between partial and total death? It's too much. And just like Sarah Imenu, what can be expected after experiencing such pain and such loss? Okay. The section I want to look at with you is the very end of the parsha. In the article Stone Chumash, on page 120, it's Perak Chafei Pasuk Aleph. Perak Chafei Pasuk Aleph. Vayosef Avram Vaykach Isha Ushma Kitura. Avram has now buried his wife. He's now, it's very poor grammar, the expression to marry off your child is an abuse of the English language, but he's now found a mate, a spouse for his son Yitzchak, and he realizes he's lonely. He takes a woman named Keturah. Who is this mysterious Keturah? Avram remarries. Who is this mysterious woman he marries? Says Rashi Keturah, Zu Hagar. He remarries Hagar. Remember Hagar, Sarah said, expelled from the house? Well, Sarah's gone. He obviously continues to have feelings for Hagar. So he remarries Hagar, says Rashi. Why is her name Keturah? Why not just tell us he remarried Hagar? Says Rashi. Nikres Keturah al Shem Shinaim Maaseh Kikitores. What's the Keturahs? the pleasant-smelling aroma of the ketores of the incense. Hagar has redefined herself, and her, her virtue is so great, so pleasant, it's like the ketores, so therefore she's referred to as ketura. Or alternatively, You know, the halacha is that you're other than a Kohen allowed to remarry even the woman you divorced, However, what's the condition of the remarriage? She has to have not married or been with someone in between. If she was, she's ineligible for you to remarry. Here she's called Keturah to speak of her pleasantness, her virtue, her commitment to Avram. She held out that Avram would take her back. She wasn't with anyone else in the interim. So that when Avram is ready to remarry, Sarah's gone, Yitzchak's married. Now Avram marries Hagar. That is the opinion of Rashi. Where'd he find her? J-Date, obviously. I don't know. He Googled, he Googled her address. Listen, if this is right, that she was holding out, then it means that she likely was hanging around. She wasn't too hard to find. If she was holding out that he would take her back, she must not have been too hard to find. That's Rashi. We'll get to that in a second. We'll get to that in a second.
Remember, he's still alive, Avram. He's still alive, Avram. So says Rashi, who's Keturah? Hagar. Says the Ibn Ezra, are you kidding me? Keturah ain't a Hagar. It's like as if he's responding to Rashi. I don't know what you want to tell me, but don't tell me it's Hagar. Ain't a Hagar. Ibn Ezra has his argument, his reason, but he says, Avram does remarry Keturah. I don't know who Keturah is, right? Ibn Ezra doesn't suggest an alternative. He says, I don't know who Keturah is. I'll just tell you who she's not. She's not Hagar. Says the Rashbam, Keturah, Lafia Pshat, ain't Zu Hagar. Who's Rashi's grandfather, by the way? And who's Rashbam's grandfather? Blew that one. Rashi. Right? The Rashbam has no problem saying, I don't, know who, I don't know who Keturah is either. One thing I know is, she's not who my grandfather says. She ain't Hagar. Good. Says the Kliyakar. <coughs> Says the Kliyakar. Choser Venasa is Hagar. So now we got a two on two. Rashi and the Kliyakar against the Ibn Ezra and... The Rashbam says Kliyakar that Avram goes and remarries her. V'kara Ketura Hashem Shemaseh Noim Ki Ketores V'chemash V'Losham V'Yosef V'Shanatsa Shemis V'Yishlon Olitein Ta'am Lama Karach Shav Ketura Hashem Maseh. So if she was virtuous, maybe she was virtuous all along. So why was she ever called Hagar? Why wasn't she referred to as Ketura all along? V'Uch Is So So Mashaperish Rashi Parshas Vayira V'Atelech V'Atita Shachazu LeGilgulei Beisavia. Last week's Parsha, Hagar is kicked out of the house. Where does she go? Rashi in last week's Pasha says she goes back to idolatry. She goes back to her father's pagan ways. So then she wasn't so pleasant as Ketoras. Says the Kliyakar, it seems to me, Who had a greater, who was a greater Navi? Avram or Sarah? Right? For those who think that Judaism is misogynistic, Unequal religion favors men and denigrates women. Chazal tell us who was the greater prophet, Avram or Sarah? Sarah. Which is why Hashem tells Avram, whatever Sarah tells you, Shema B'Kolah, listen to her. Why? Because she's smarter than you. She's more righteous than you. Right? And women, Jewish women have been telling their Jewish husbands this ever since then. So, I, I didn't say they're right or wrong. I'm just telling you a fact. I told you, I'm married 20 years now. I'm allowed to talk like this. <coughs> so, Avram, Nasa Vinishma, exactly. Nasa Vinishma, Shema Bekola, Nasa Vinishma. So, Avram was tough, he was secondary to Sarah, says the Kliyakar. Sarah knew this Hagar, she's not really in it all the way. She has this yearning to go back to her father. She saw Yishmael as uh, not a great influence. Sarah says, look, the kid's up to no good. And the mother, my co-wife, Hagar, she's also, she's not all the way there. She's not all the way there. Avram says to Sarah, I'm not getting that. I'm also a Navi. And I'm not perceiving that about Hagar Yishma. They don't seem so terrible to me. However, Avram 
But God says to Avram, I don't care what you're getting or not getting, you're not getting it because your connection is not as strong as Sarah. Sarah's got a more powerful connection. You're still dial-up. She's got high speed. So if that's true, how does Avram remarry or ask the Kliyakar? If Hashem says, Sarah's right, and Sarah's intuition told her, Hagar still has some yearning, some appetite for Avodah Zarah. So how did Avram take her back? How does Avram remarry her? Alkein bolotaritz velomar so really, this is why she's called Keturah now. To tell us, Shinoi Hashem. She has a new name. You know, some kids go to Israel for the year and all of a sudden they lose the English name the parents gave them. They insist on now being called by the Hebrew name. Because the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah says, if you want to do Tshuva, Shinoi Makom, Shinoi Hashem. You change your name. So people can say to Hagar, Hey, aren't you the same woman with the Avodazar? She said, I don't know what you're talking about. That was Hagar. My name is Keturah. <laughs> and it's not just a cute thing. It's, it's a real... If you really want to be perceived differently, if you really want to be different, Shina Hashem. Who else did Shuva? Not only Hagar, who's Keturah, who else? Continues the Kliyakar, Kamo Yishma Bina. She also gamken Shuva. Lafar, same Zeh, Kara Avram Shma, Keturah. So Avram now is devoted to both Avram and Sarah were right. Sarah was right that Hagar still had a craving for Avodah Zarah. Sarah was right to expel her. Avram was also right to say she has virtue. She's a good woman. She came back. And Avram now proves it to the world when he calls her Keturah. Oshema Keturah and so on. Okay, that's the Kliyakar. So who is this Keturah? There's a lot more to say on it, but I want to go weiter. Who is this Keturah? Rashi and the Kliyakar say it's Hagar. And the Ibn Ezra and the Sephornos and the Rashmam rather say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know who she is. All I know is she's not Hagar. Next posse, posse Bez. V'atelun lo es Zimran v'es Yakshan v'es Medan v'es Midyan v'es Yishbak v'es Shuach. If it's Hagar, she's a very fertile woman at a very advanced age. Avram too. Very powerful, still having children. The uh, Svarno disagrees. Look at the Svarno on Pasuk Beis. Gidlo osam bebeso al derech hameshes b'nei Michal sheyod al-Adriel shegodlo osam shalu ayu b'nei ha-klau. Ki yom nam avram lo holi kem Yitzchak v'yishmo k'mavur b'divrei ha-yamim. These children were adopted. They were raised within the home. But they weren't born to them. Avram's only biological children are Yitzchak and Yishmo. He raised these children as if they were their own, but says the Sforno, they were not really, they were not really his own. We don't find anyone naming their children this. These are all the children of Keturah. Yes. Excellent question. Oh, so Rabbi Roth asked an excellent question. Vatelet suggests being the biological parent. So I would answer, because we know the Chazal tell us, Torah describes Moshe as being the father of Aaron's children. And the Gemara from there derives, earlier in Sanhedrin, that 
Whoever teaches someone else's children Torah is as if they gave birth. So maybe the same Vatelin to tell us that because Avram raised, raised them in the path of ethical monotheism, he taught them a way of life, it's as if he gave birth to them. Maybe that's why. Okay, look at Pasuk Hay. And remember what I told you earlier. Vayitin Avram as Kola Avram gives Yitzchak something. What does Avram give Yitzchak? So earlier in the parsha, Vashem Berach is Avram, Bakol. God blessed Avram with Kol. Now Avram does what? He takes Kola Sherlo and gives it to to Yitzchak. Very, very interesting. So what is this Kol? God blessed Avram by Kol, and Avram now takes Kol and gives it to. Yeah. So. In Oros HaTshuva, Rav Kook explains, and this is from uh, Rav Moshe Weinberger's Sefer, his commentary on Rav Kook's Oros HaTshuva. In Oros HaTshuva, Rav Kook explains that in a healthy person, there's an inseparable relationship between the individual and the, totally, uh, the totality of existence and creation. The person who cares about other people and things around them will observe and sense the good in the universe. In contrast, a self-absorbed person who's obsessed with his or her own happiness and interest is misaligned with creation and everything around them. He or she simply cannot see the harmony, beauty, and unity of the universe. In Moran Avucham, the Rabbim speaks of a person who mistakenly believes that there's more evil and suffering than goodness and joy in the world. He describes that this belief results from a person seeing himself as the center of the world, and he therefore measures the whole world by his own narrow limit experience. Such a person has separated himself from the cosmos. So Rav Kook explains that when Hashem blessed Avram Bakol, it means that Hashem empowered Av- Avram with a panoramic view of all of reality, with a broad perspective of the universe. Rav Kook explains that being blessed Bakol, seeing synthesis in the world, is not only to believe statistically that there's more good than bad, but it means even seeing the painful as part of the meaning and order and purpose of the universe. Even seeing the dark and hard moments and experience as part of the coal, as part of the big picture. Avram lived with a wide-angle lens. And despite whatever particular challenge he was enduring, he was able to see and appreciate how much good was around him and all the good that he had. That's the Hashem Beiraches Avram Bakol. He lived with a sense of coal, of seeing the synthesis and integration in the entire world. He saw the big picture. You know, sometimes we say to people, don't focus on this moment. Zoom out the lens and see the big picture. Somebody sent me yesterday, I was listening, a study was done that said that uh, more than 50% of people think that we are living in the worst time ever in America. Worst time ever. Now here's the, the amazing thing about that study. Among the study were not just millennials. You can imagine a millennial or even younger, saying, yeah, you know, the divisiveness in this country, the mass shootings that we've tragically been seeing in this country, the hopelessness we have for being better and people working together. But among those polled in this survey were people who lived through the Second World War, people who fought in wars, people who lived in horrible times. And they described this as the worst time ever. And the analysis that I saw of the survey was 
that we're living in a time where people are so narrowly focused that they've lost perspective. They don't see the big picture. If you look at the big picture and you contrast our lifestyle, progress, technology, safety, peace that we have today, whatever you think of our leadership and all forms and branches of leadership. So you can't, of course this is not the worst it's ever been. It's not even close to it if you have any knowledge of American history. But Elamai, people live and they zoom in the lens and they see right what's in front of them and they project based on that. Avram was the opposite. Vashem Berach es Avram Bakol. Avram lived the big picture. He was able to see with a panoramic view of the world. Living with a sense of coal, seeing the whole picture provides you with faith and courage and tenacity to endure even that which is painful. Living with a sense of coal brings an attitude of calm and an optimistic spirit and so on and so forth. So Avram has bakol and he takes that bakol and he gives it to whom? We just read the Pasuk. Avram. Avram takes his panoramic view of the world, the synthesis of creation, and he takes it in Vayikach Avram as kol, Vayitein Avram as kol. He gave that, qual- that quality, that sense to Yitzchak. Who does Yitzchak give it to? Yaakov. We allude to this whenever we bench. If you eat bread and you bench, what do we say at the end of benching? Bakol, Mikol, Kol. And these are the three times kol is used with Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Why do we say that? Because as we bench, we realize, if I just enjoyed this good meal, Vashem Beirach is Avram Bakol. Vayitein is kol shelo liyitzchak. And Yitzchak gave Yaakov. Yaakov lived mikol. When does Yitzchak say kol? When he meets up with Esav. And Esav says, Esav says, Yeshli Rav. Yeah, not bad. I make a living. I'm comfortable. And what does Yaakov say? Yeshli? I got it all. Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov each talk about coal, and the coal is this attitude in life, and we allude to it, and we're supposed to feel it when we bench. When we're sated, when we're satisfied, and we bench, we should feel that sense of, I have. Now here's the kicker. Who tried to attack coal? Who? When Yishmael is born, what is it described? Yishmael is Yado. Bakol. Yishmael is his hand will be upon that sense of coal. He wants to destroy goodness. He wants to undermine optimism and hope. He wants to take apart the synthesis of the universe. Yado Bakol. Yishmael and his descendants, their war, their battle is to take away our coal. We are the children of Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov. We have Bakol Mikol Kol. We have this mentality, this attitude, this mission. And Yishmael are trying to fight us, Yado Bakol. They're trying to undermine and take away that sense of, of coal. Okay? Yes. And by the way, the end of benching, what do we say? Harachamonu Yivarech Hosanu Ve'es Kol Asher Lanu. Hashem, bless that sense of coal which is within us. Kemoshin is Baruch Hu Avoseinu Avotav Yaakov Bakol Mikol Kol Ken Yivarech Hosanu Kolonu Yachad Bebarach HaShlema V'Nomar Amen Yes What do I have to do with him? Oh, Yishmael did do tshuva On the other hand, he's a Pera Adam and he's Yadu Bakol 
And we see, Yishmael, the individual, did tshuva, but the nation that he gave birth to continued to inherit those qualities. Let's keep going. Avram sent gifts to these Bnei Pelagshim and got them out of Yitzchak's hair. These are the years of Avram's life. How long did he live? 175 years old. Rashi, just like what Sarah tells us, Ben Kuf ke Ben Ayin, Lekoach, Ben Ayin ke Ben Hes, Hey, Beloches. At 100, he was like 70 in terms of his strength. At 70, he was like five years old, that he was innocent and he was pure of any, of any sense of sin. Avram died at a good old age, mature, he was saveya, he was content, and Vayigva El Amav, he was gathered to, I'm sorry, Vayasaf, Vayasaf El Amav, he was gathered to his people. What does it mean he died Beseva Tova? Says the Rashbam, Kemoshaam Allah Kodesh Baruchu. That Avram, he, had, he left this world satisfied. He had led a good life. He had led a happy life. He was Savea. You know, it, it, he lived with, with Beseva Tova. We're never ready to say goodbye to somebody, ever. To lose a mother, to lose a father, we're never ever. But we also have to see death in context. Sometimes I interact with people, their parent who was in their 90s dies, and they act as if there was some terrible tragedy. Where's Hashem? How could this tragedy happen? You know, it's a loss. And one should cry. There's a sense of grieving, a sense of loss. It's painful to lose someone so precious at any age, at any age at all. But we also have to understand we're not going to live forever. And ever since man was expelled from the, from the uh, Gan Eden, death is something that we struggle with. We're all dying. The newborn is dying. The question just is, when? when? So we have to be able to see things in context. Again, that cold. If one, left a long, if one lived a long life and a good life, for the most part a happy life, they leave a legacy, they've contributed, they have seva tova, zakein v'saveya, this is what we aspire to. Of course we sit shiva, there's avelis, there's grieving no matter what age a person leaves. But we can't describe a tragedy of... Uh, Somebody who dies in advanced age is a tragedy of somebody who's, who's a young person. Svarno says, Everything Avram wanted to see, he got to do in his life. He wanted a son, he had a son, he wanted him to be married, he was married. He transformed the world radically with ethical monotheism. That is, that is truly being Savea. Vayasef el Amav says the Sforno, Neasaf al Tsror Hachayim Lachay Haolam. He was gathered to the bounds of the living. Im Sadike Adora Shehem Amav Vidomim Elav. Vamru Amav Beloshan Rabim, Kiam the Mrava Hevda Ben at Sadikim Bemala Imayosim Kulum Zoch and Lachay Haolam. Meaning, what does it mean to be, we say this all the time, Yenafshe Tsror Bet Tsror Hachayim, that their soul be bound in the bond of life. It means, that through how the living live, the soul of the departed is bound because we are embracing their legacy, living their way, walking in their footsteps, memorializing and keeping them alive. Avram achieves that. 
There's not a day that goes by. I would venture to guess there's not a minute that goes by that somewhere in the world someone is not using the words Avram Avinu. You're davening, you say Avram. You're learning, you say Avram. So Vayasef El Amav is we. Amav, we are his people. Vayasef El Amav. He's Nitzrar B'tzurar Chaim. When we, the living, talk about him as Avram Avinu, our father, he continues to be alive. So Avram dies. Who shows up at his funeral? So I want to end with this. What's Ishmael doing? I alluded to this last week. Remember we talked about last week when Hashem tells Avram, take your son. He says, I have two sons. Your only son. They're each an only son to their mother. The one you love. I love them both. All right, take Yitzchak. So he said the one he loves, Avram always loved Yitzchak. Uh, he kept loving Yishmael. And I said we would see this. Payoff. And here's the payoff. When Avram dies, who shows up? Yitzchak and Yishmael, hand in hand. Whose name should be first? Shmuel, why? He's older. Says Rashi, Mikan she'asa Yishmael tshuva, v'holich as Yitzchak lefanav. Part of Yishmael's process of tshuva is to even give greater respect to Yitzchak, to realize Yitzchak's greater than he. V'hi seva tova shenemra ba'avraham. And the last Pasuk that said that Avram died b'seva tova, you know what that seva tova was? Nachas from the kinder. That Yishmael had come back. And that Yishmael and Yitzchak are getting along. At least for right then. Yishmael and Yitzchak are getting along. And that gives Avram the nachas. Now, what made Yishmael come back? What made Yishmael become a Baal Tshuva? He was thrown out of his father's house. He almost died in the desert of thirst. His mother couldn't bear to watch. And here, all we know is he's thrown out. Fast forward. Avram dies. How are they together? So the Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, the, the Medrash, Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, Perak Shloshim, is an amazing Medrash. I want to read it to you. The Medrash says the following. That after Yishmael is thrown out of the house, Shalach Yishmael v'lakach lo'isha me'arvos ma'a v'isa shema. Yishmael takes a wife and her name is is uh, Isa. Three years after he's expelled from the house, Avram tracks down Yishmael to go visit. I'll read it to you in the English because we don't have a lot of time. Avram goes to see Yishmael and he swore to Sarah, Nishbala Sarah You can only imagine for three years Avram says, Sarah, I listened to you, like God said. I threw him out, but I got to go visit him. It's my son. He needs to know I love him. I need to spend time with him. Sarah says, no. He's going to influence you. You're going to bring the influence back. Avram, you're such a giving person. You're going to allow him to come back. Can't do it. No. They finally came up with a compromise. What was the compromise, says the Medrash? That Avram will go to where Yishmael is, but he won't come off the camel. What do you think is the meaning? That he won't descend from the camel. What do you think that means? That yes, go visit Yishmael, but you have to remain on your level. You can't immerse yourself in Yishmael's way of living. 
You can't expose yourself to Yishmael's way of being. Yes, go visit him, but don't compromise on who you are, Nayoda. Avram arrives on his camel in the middle of the day, and he sees Yishmael's wife, Isa, and he says, No, where's Yishmael? She says he went with his mother to get fruits and dates from the wilderness. So he says to her, let me have some bread, a little water. It's been a long journey. I'm sitting on the camel. She says, I'm sorry, I have nothing for you. No bread, no water. What did Avram understand? This is not a good situation. So what does he say to her? When Yishmael comes home, give him the following message. When Yishmael comes home, tell him that there was an old man from Canaan who came to visit and he left a message that you need to change the threshold of your house. The entrance of your house, the threshold, it's not good. You need to change it. When Yishmael got home, she told him the story and says the Medrash that the son of a wise man is a wise man. Yishmael understood and he divorced her. He sent her away. His mother took from a wife from her father's household and her name was Fatima. Again, after three years, Avram went to see Yishmael. And again, he swore to Sarah that he wouldn't get off the camel. He arrives midday, he found the wife of Yishmael. And this time she took out some food, some bread and water to give to him. Avram got up and he davened to Hashem. Blessed be Hashem for his son, the house of Yishmael was filled with all good things, money and blessing. When Yishmael returned, she told him the story. And Yishmael understood that until that moment, listen to the language. Yishmael understood. He understood that his father continued to love him. He had come back again to see him. He had left him this message. He gave him this advice. He understood that despite the separation, how much his father had loved him. And you know, there's, there's really three ways for us to understand this. With the, own, with the alienated people in our own lives and the importance of making them continue to feel loved by us, we should understand this as a chi of an outreach, the beautiful chi of an outreach, that even those who are behaving in such a way that's incongruous with the community that we're trying to create, but we have to go see them even if we don't get off the gummel. We don't have to compromise on who we are and our lifestyle, but we have to go see them and express that love. But the Radar of David Luria in his commentary on the Medrash says the following, with this I end. The Medrash tells us that Avram continued to find Yishmael and love him, even though Yishmael was unworthy. This is an illusion, says the Radal. This is an allusion to HaKadosh Baruch Hu's attitude to us. That even when we feel distant or alienated, HaKadosh Baruch Hu always loves us unconditionally no matter what. Even when we feel that we've been expelled, even when we feel we've been kicked out, so to say, HaKadosh Baruch Hu continues to crave us and to love us as well. This Monday night we're starting the Midrashah, starting a new four-part series for women. Four parts, Hilcho Shabbos. Beginning Monday night, 8.30 here. Reminder that the Amunashir for women tomorrow morning at Cup of Joe for men is 745 Minyan. 
And Amuna for women is at 8.45. Uh, Have a great day.